0: Well hello everyone. It's good to see you all. I give a wave, a hearty wave to everyone here and I look forward to the day when we'll be able to uh, to give a shake and even a hug. Um, I do want to uh, share my name is Mike Palumbo for those I haven't met you. I'd love to meet you at some point point. Uh, and uh, so shoot me an email mike at rivermont.org if you're new. I'd love to greet you appropriately. Uh, I do want to let you know that um, my wife is pregnant, so those that don't know yet, and she is on her final leg. Uh, so as far as I know, she has not given birth yet to a child, uh, but we will let you know when she does. Uh, all is looking well. Uh, do covet your prayers uh, for us as uh, we enter into a whole new season of life. I've taught a lot about it, but I do think I have no clue what I'm saying, uh, so, uh, so Lord have mercy. Um, Well, today's text is going to be in Psalm 73, so you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 73. And as you turn there, I want to remind you that the past handful of weeks, we've been in a series, uh, really the past handful of months, we've been in a series in Psalms. The past couple of weeks, we've been really addressing meditation. We've been talking about how when we meditate upon the Word of God, it changes our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. And the reality here is that we as humans, we're meditative beings. We're constantly thinking and considering, delighting in different things. But see, if we don't meditate meditate on the Word of God, it's not as though we stop meditating altogether. Rather, we find ourselves meditating on everything else. We find ourselves meditating upon what everyone else has and obsessing about what they have and what we don't have in our present life circumstances. The Bible calls this obsessive meditating on everything else and everyone else envy. Jonathan Edwards defines envy as being grieved or uneasy on another's prosperity. Another way you can define envy is by simply saying it is desiring what someone has and despising them for having it. In this Fourth of July weekend, we must be warned that when sin mixes with the American dream, that is a recipe that can create all sorts of prideful envy. It has been called the green-eyed monster along with jealousy. In Shakespeare's Othello, we hear this quoted, this, this label of envy, and we see the self-destruction of envy itself. He says, Oh beware, my lord, of jealousy or envy. It is a green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat, It feeds on. Envy appears like a loving master. It seems like this envious desire will give us what we want. But we will find that it is truly an ugly monster that destroys those who desire it. And according to Shakespeare, like a green-eyed monster, envy ultimately mocks us and devours us whole. This is why we also must be aware of our envy and we must pour out our envious hearts to God in prayer. Psalm 73 teaches us not only how to pour out our envious hearts, but how to pour in the reality of God's goodness. So hear the word of God in Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease and increasing in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children." But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You. We thank You for the sanctuary of God. We thank You, Lord God, that You are here with us right in the middle of the storms of life, that You are present among us by Your Spirit and that You, Lord Jesus Christ, entered into this world to show us the way to life, to save us from our lifeless sin. O oh, Jesus, O oh, Spirit, O oh, God the Father, help us to behold the beauty of the Gospel this morning. Lord, we are sick. We need Your saving help. So help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, we are called to consider the path that we take in life. At a crossroads, two roads diverge into the yellow wood. He gazes carefully down the road to consider which path he ought to take. This road will be the road of his life. There is no going back. In the last line, he says this, I shall be telling this with a sigh, Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood and I. I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. See, the Lord has called us to walk with Him down the road less traveled. When Jesus' disciples realized that Christ was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, they clung to Him in faith. They left everything. They denied themselves. They took up their cross and they followed Jesus. In our life of discipleship, we learn how to walk in the ways of the Lord with Jesus who saved us. Though many Christians begin this walk with Christ with great joy, it can so easily turn into great weariness. Soon enough, we find this walk can be strenuous. We kick off the old habits and we put on new shoes, and we're not certain that these shoes really even fit. There comes a point in our Christian walk when we meditate on our old life of sin. We start remembering the empty joys of our godless life. We see friends walking in rebellion against God, and they seem to be just fine. We begin to think for ourselves, you know, I kind of miss the old ways. Life was a lot easier when I wasn't worried about how I walked. We forget about all that we gained in Christ and focus on only all that we gave up. We forget the glorious destination of our pilgrimage. Maybe I should just retrace my steps and simply run away. As Psalm 73 says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. You see, Psalm 73 begins with a declaration of God's goodness. And this is the very center point of this psalm. If we miss this, we miss the whole message of the gospel. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We heard about this goodness last week in Titus 3-4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous works done by us, but according to His own mercy. But we easily forget God's goodness, don't we? We easily go on in life and we forget about all of the glory of God's goodness seen in the gospel and throughout the scriptures. You see, what happens is we learn the cost of discipleship. We start to realize that denying ourself and bearing our cross is a very wearisome task. We may have lived a good life, but we have forgotten the good God. Our obedience has become empty discipline with no delight we have been given over to all the regular ways of Christianity, but we forgot the weightiness of God's goodness. We see the world running around and reveling in sin, but we are stuck in a rut. Maybe we should return to the prosperity of the wicked. Here in Psalm 73-2, the psalmist is tripping over himself. But why? The text says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. With boastful pride, the wicked fill their lives with sin upon sin, and they fill their barns with riches with no regulations. It is painful enough to see their prosperity, but their pride gets under our skin. We should be rich. They should be poor. We should be joyful. They should be sorrowful. What is going on? Where are you, God? Have you felt this wrestle in your own heart? Just as the envious serpent deceived Adam and Eve by the cunning of his lies, so we can easily be led astray by the lies of envy. If we will reject envy and rejoice in God's goodness, we must expose the lies of envy. First, envy always exaggerates the prosperity of others. Look at verse 73, 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. You see, whenever we are envious of anyone, we always focus on their happiness. We exaggerate their prosperity. We look at the wicked and it looks like they have no pain, no trouble, no hardship at all. Their life multiplies joy and subtracts sorrow. You see, we look at the psalmist and he sums up the life of the wicked. He says they are always at ease. They have increase in riches. No diminishment. No sadness. But this can't be true, can it? I mean, we are envious of other people because we see all of their prosperity, but we don't see their pain. In other words, we see the job promotion, but we don't see the added stress. We see the beautiful looks, but not the labor of beautifying. We see the extravagant house, but not the upkeep and the bills. We see the pleasure and sin, but not the addictive slavery to that sin. Ecclesiastes 5 reveals the pain of the prosperous. It describes the vanity of a life of prosperity without God. Look at Ecclesiastes 5.10. It says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is a vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? As he came from his mother's womb, he will take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, in anger. Don't fall into the lie of prosperity apart from God. The other lie that we often hear from envy is the promise of joy if we get it. If I walk away from God and chase after prosperity and sinful pleasures, I'll finally be happy. But the psalmist tells us the truth. He is boiling with envy inside of himself. His joy has been poisoned into bitterness. Look at Psalm 73, 21-22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. His soul was embittered. And this is the very thing that envy does to us. Envy grows from a small seed of bitterness to a forest fire of bitter destruction. Envy begins with comparison and ends in chaos. We compare ourselves to someone else and we see that there is a difference. Someone else enjoys a life that we are not able to enjoy. Then we desire what we don't have. We desire those looks, that car, those abilities, that spouse... And this desire builds, and all we can think about is how much we desire, we desire, we desire, we desire. It's eating us up. But we never get it, do we? Because we don't get it, we grow discontent. We start obsessing about everything we don't have and everything else that others enjoy. We make demands of the person, of the world, and even God to give us what we desire. And if we finally realize we can't get what we desire, we seek to destroy. Thomas Aquinas defined envy as joy in another's sorrow. Envy in its most grotesque form moves from desiring to despising to destroying. We either literally destroy someone through murder, or we abuse another person, or we simply cut ourselves off and avoid from them altogether. Or maybe we destroy them and their opportunity to enjoy that thing that we love. You see, in this very moment, we get angry at God, we get angry at others, and ultimately this bitterness turns us into a beast. We just want to devour everything around us. We desire, we despise, and we destroy. So I say, beware, beware of this green-eyed monster of envy. It only mocks the one who chases after its lies. You see, the psalmist wrestles with his envious desires and gets weary. We see him spent, he spent his first portion of the psalm perplexed at the prosperity of the wicked. He can't wrap his mind around why God would bless the wicked with all of this prosperity and leave us wanting, struggling, straining. And eventually, this desiring, groaning turns into a growling out of his discontent and displeasure. How can he taint the beast of envy before it rages in ruin? You see, in this weary wrestling, he almost cuts the leash and runs in rebellion against God. He almost runs wild after sin to go with the wicked in their pursuit of impurity. The psalmist cries out, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I have lived the good life to no purpose. And if the good guys finish last, why am I even running this race? Right before he crashes and burns, he hits the brakes. The emergency lights come on, and there's a big flashing arrow that's saying, Selfishness, selfishness, selfishness. You're focusing too much on yourself. He realizes that if he abandons God, he would also abandon God's people. He says, If I spoke thus, I would have betrayed the generation of the children. He knows the calling of Psalm 145.4. That one generation ought to commend God's good works to the next. But here in this text, he's not commending God's works, but actually condemning God's works. He is telling the next generation to give up before they begin seeking God. Change course. Take the path well-traveled where the wicked roam. In Psalm 73.16, the psalmist falls down, exhausted. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. The prosperity of the wicked, the pain of persecution, the presence of sinful envy have taken his breath away. We get exhausted when we look in the mirror and we see our great struggle with sin. And we ask the question is there any real hope for change? Until I went into the sanctuary. Of God. We will not change our envious desires by simply telling ourselves, don't desire, don't desire, don't desire, don't desire, just stop it. Self-restraint won't change a sinful heart. The only thing that can change a sinful heart is a glorious Savior. You see, the pivot point of this psalm is in verse 17. The psalmist enters into the sanctuary of God and everything changes. When you find yourself wandering away from the faith, you should start by asking yourself one simple question. When was the last time you entered into the sanctuary of God? You see, the sanctuary of God is the dwelling place of God with His people. It was the place of God's presence. It was a building where people beheld God's glory. The sanctuary is not a magical building. It's not a place you just enter into and all of a sudden change all at once. Walking into a big building doesn't change us, but walking with God does. To enter the sanctuary of God means, first of all, that we enjoy God's presence. Verse 23 says that when he enters the sanctuary of God, he realizes that he is continually with the Lord, that God holds his right hand with love and care. He is not alone anywhere he goes, even if he goes down the valley of the shadow of death. He is guided along with God's counsel. There is nothing in heaven or on earth that he desires like his God. It is good to be near God. You see, for many of us, the reason why we are filled with envious desires is we've stopped desiring God. We have stopped entering into his presence personally and publicly. We have forgotten God's glory and have become dull in our affections. And so we must enter the sanctuary of God. And this certainly does mean we need to attend public worship, whether in person or online. But more than that, we are called to worship in spirit and in truth. We expect to behold God's glory in Jesus, to be filled with His presence and to become like Him. We don't check out until the sermon or click ahead to the good stuff. We worship throughout the whole service, letting in the liturgy of the service, bring us into a deeper appreciation for God's glory and the beauty of the gospel. We long to worship God throughout, but this also requires that we regularly enter the sanctuary of God throughout the week, for the scripture tells us that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This reminds us that God dwells within us, that he wants us to enjoy him every minute of every day. Have you entered the sanctuary of God? We also enter the sanctuary of God to receive forgiveness. You see, in the sanctuary, there are offerings made morning and evening for the forgiveness of sins. And in the sanctuary, on the day of atonement, the high priest would gather together all the people to pray and to fast, to seek God's forgiveness. They would sacrifice a ram by the shedding of its blood for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And they would confess the sins on the back of a goat and it would run out of the city, taking away the sins of God's people. You see, one reason why we still wrestle with envy is we have not humbled ourselves before God's throne of grace and confessed our envious desires and sought His gracious forgiveness. In verse 26, He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." You see, we come to the sanctuary as weak sinners who need fresh strength from the God of grace. And we have forgotten our sin, but more than that, we have forgotten our Savior who came to take our sin. And brothers and sisters, this is why we take communion today. To have fellowship in the presence of our Savior and to remember and to be strengthened in our faith, in our weakness of our faith. The priest stood daily at his service in the sanctuary and there, these priests offered repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by Jesus' single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10 11 through 14. We must enter the sanctuary of God. And lastly, we must keep the end in mind. You see, in the beginning of this song, he's exaggerating the prosperity of the wicked. They're always growing in pride and always at ease, and they have no pain. But when he enters the sanctuary of God, he discerns their end. You see, envy always keeps us looking at the present and blinds us from the future. We always are looking at the short-term pleasures of sin and not the long-term effects. The wicked show off their pride on their neck. Their fool's gold on their necklace appears rich. They have the appearances of riches, but we know it's all a fraud. Their eyes swell out because of their fatness, and this fatness blinds their eyes from being able to see the glory of God. Their hearts overflow with follies that will one day end in a cardiac arrest. Their mouths speak out against the heaven; they boast loudly all throughout the earth. But there will be a day when their mouths are shut, and there is silence and utter darkness. The text tells us that their end will be eternal destruction. In verse eighteen through twenty, and verse twenty-seven, it says, "Truly, you set them in slippery places; you make them fall down to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes." O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. The wicked live in a dream world of prosperity. They have prosperity with no penalty. They have sin with no suffering and rebellion with no reckoning. But there will be a day of reckoning. They will awake from this dream, and all this mirage of prosperity will vanish before their face. The man who gained the whole world will forfeit his very self. And God will look at this man in the eyes and say, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things which you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Growing up, we loved to play the family game of Jenga around the table. Anticipation always builds as you try to find out who's going to screw it all up, right? You put a brick from the bottom to the top and find the perfect place. And this stack is moving, shifting left and right. Everyone knows that at some point this building will come crashing down. It's only a matter of choosing the wrong brick or putting it in the wrong place. And those who have chosen a life apart from God and constructed sin upon sin will one day soon come crashing down. Everything they built their life on will topple to the ground. They will lose it all and perish for their unfaithfulness. If you are still building your life apart from God, I plead with you, turn from your unfaithfulness and take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you truly repent and sorrow for your sin, then God will relent from the destruction. Throw your bricks of sin down on the ground and fall upon Christ your rock. For there is no other foundation laid for the Christian than Jesus Christ and His finished work to secure us. And there is no other cornerstone which holds the building altogether but Jesus. And Christian, this is the truth that you know. That in your own life, when you turn from your sin to your Savior, you found in the Lord Jesus Christ that even though your heart and flesh have failed, God can be the strength of your heart and your portion forever. And Christian, this is your eternal hope. We have been justified by faith and have peace with God. Jesus has taken the place of justice and has given you God's peace. We stand on grace by faith. There is no other foundation. And you have the Lord Jesus, your Savior. And so we know that we now, even in our suffering, we rejoice with hope. Because we know that we who have lost our life for Christ's sake will save it. As Luke 18.29 says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Therefore, take heart, because God is the strength of your heart, your portion forever, your eternal refuge. When we take refuge in God's goodness, we no longer envy the wicked, but declare God's goodness to the wicked. In his early 20s, Leonard Debar rejected a life of prideful prosperity to share the gospel with 3,000 slaves on St. Thomas Island. He was determined to not live for his own interests, but the interests of others. He followed the way of Jesus in humble suffering for the salvation of these slaves. In her book titled, The Bow and the Cloud, Barney Bartonin shares why Leonard Debard and David Nishman sought to suffer with these slaves. It was told him, that these slaves were so severely worked by their masters that unless those who went to preach to them would consent to become slaves themselves and labor with them in plantations, they would have little opportunity to communicate divine instruction to them. This intelligence did not in the smallest degree daunt the devoted young men. They were both ready not only to be bound for Christ, but to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Such indeed was the simplicity of purpose, the singleness of heart, and the strength of faith by which we are actuated. You see, they were willing to make any sacrifice which might be required if they could but win one soul for Christ, with God's help. And as they left that shore of that ship, they shouted out loud, May the glory of the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering." see when you're in the sanctuary of god everything changes you see god's goodness and his glory and it completely flips the scale so if we are to reject envy we must rejoice in god's goodness we must enter the sanctuary of god and behold the blood of the lamb shed for us let's pray lord jesus christ we do thank you that You entered into the sanctuary of God, the true sanctuary of God, the Holy of Holies, where You were sacrificed, bloodied and beaten, died for our sins. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that You would forgive us. Forgive us for our envy that has crucified our Savior. But Lord, lift our eyes up to the beauty of the Gospel where Jesus shed His blood for sinners. Lift our hearts up because they're failing. Give us new life that we might see the glory of God. So reject envy and rejoice in your goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.